With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello folks, and welcome to a History of Egypt podcast interview. My guest today is Dr. Joyce Tildesley. Dr. Joyce Tildesley is a renowned Egyptologist who has published many books on their society and great figures within ancient history. Dr. Tildesley has appeared on the podcast before when she discussed her book Nefertiti's Face, and the history of the late Amarna period. Now, I am pleased to welcome Dr. Tildesley back to the History of Egypt podcast to discuss her new book, Tutankhamun, Pharaoh, Icon, and Enigma. This book, published in 2022, explores the life and legacy of Tutankhamun as a king of Egypt. The book explores what we know about his life and his reign, and of course, the legacy of his tomb, that monumental discovery, and the influence it has had. My thanks to Dr. Tildesley and her team for reaching out to discuss this new work. Come, enjoy a conversation with Dr. Joyce Tildesley. Good morning, Dr. Tildesley. Joyce, welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast. How are you doing today? I'm fine, thank you. Thank you for inviting me back. Um, here it's early in the morning we're on the other side of the world and it's cold and damp and it's really nice to be talking about Tutankhamun. <laughs> so you are currently in the middle of your press junket for the new book Tutankhamun Pharaoh Icon and Enigma and at the time we're recording this the anniversary on the 4th of November just passed a few days ago. Are you sick of talking about Tutankhamun yet? Not sick of him, no, but there has been a lot of it, certainly on the actual anniversary day. I think I did 10 radio um, oh broadcasts, so it, it became a bit difficult to remember what I'd said to, to whom. Um, and, <laughs> you know, by the end of the day, I was quite frazzled. But no, I like the opportunity to talk about Tutankhamun. Um, and there's been a great interest, certainly in the UK, in this anniversary. And I think it's possibly because it's actually taking people away from the slightly gloomy news that we have all around us at the moment. There's a bit of glamour and excitement there. So I think people are actually really interested in, in listening to something a bit different at the moment. Hmm. So that, that aspect of entertainment and escapism, how important do you think that is to the study of ancient Egyptian history overall? Is that, would you see that as a major component? I think it's an aspect of it, and I think it's an aspect of it that, as academics, we shouldn't ignore. I know some some academics have traditionally said, oh, it's popular, particularly Tutankhamun, a very popular subject, don't touch it. But actually, it's important. It's particularly important when it translates into tourism and people visiting Egypt, because this is a huge source of revenue for the Egyptians. So we shouldn't ignore it and we shouldn't also act as if knowledge about Tutankhamun should only be confined to an elite class of academics. It's something that should be shared by everyone. Everyone should be talking about Tutankhamun. Why not? If it, if it takes people away from, from some of the, the rather grim facts of daily life, that's a good thing, I think. Hmm. And the you note, in, you note in the book, in the new book, that the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb in 1922 
one of the reasons why it became so renowned or so famous so quickly was that it happened in a time where people were looking for a bit of escapism. They had just come out of World War I. They were beginning the long years of the Great Depression, were starting to set in, particularly in Europe. And the 1918 pandemic had just uh, been raging through much of the world. It's an interesting parallel that 100 years later, we are in similar circumstances in many uh, nations. Is that mere coincidence or is that perhaps, do we are we particularly drawn to these stories at times of social challenge and difficulty? I think we possibly are, um, but we've always been drawn to Tutankhamun. I think when the story was first broadcast and because it was straight after the Great War, there was much better communications than there'd ever been on any dig in Egypt before. So it was really the first dig that was being conducted in the eyes of the world. You could read about it in the newspaper on a daily basis. You felt almost as if you were there in the Valley of the Kings. And I think I forgot what the question was. <laughs> Sorry. I was just asking if if these stories are particularly appealing to us in times of social difficulty or crisis. Yes, I think stories of excitement and glamour and superficially archaeology is very exciting. It's very glamorous. Um, the idea of two men, Howard Carter and Lord Carnarvon, traveling to a lonely desert valley, looking for a lost king who they know he's lost. It's not a coincidence that they find him and then finding him lying surrounded by gold. There's a, there's a really instant appeal to people. It's the stuff of Hollywood, isn't it? It's, a, it's the sort of story that we like to read about. I mean, there is a lot more to the story than that, of course. And certainly in Egypt, the Egyptian people, they were also very interested in the excavation, but in a different way, because they were on the, the, the verge of breaking away from control and taking control of their own lands. And to them, this was more a symbol of nationalism. And Tutankhamun was able to, to stand for that. But I think, yes, I think, I think archaeology is a distraction, has, has happened for a long time. And I think it's it's a good thing in many ways, if that's what it takes to get people interested in, in the ancient world um, and they start to study it, that's fine. I don't think it should be the preserved just of academics who mm. read about it but don't share it. I think it's something that the whole mm. world should be have access to. That's what I think anyway. I, I think everybody can benefit from learning about ancient Egypt. Mm. Of course I would I, do. That's my job, but yeah. Fair point. <laughs> I agree, but yes. So this isn't your first book about Tutankhamun as a pharaoh of Egypt and um, the discovery in specifically. In 2012, you published the book Tutankhamun's Curse, the developing history of an Egyptian king. Looking back on your time writing that book and your time writing this new one, how has your perception of Tutankhamun and the field of Tutankhamun studies, quote unquote, how has that changed over the past 10 years? The, the first book, I was really interested in looking at Tutankhamun's afterlife, not the afterlife that he expected, but the mm. afterlife that we've given him, um, particularly the mm. development of the curse theory and how that happened. So the two books have, have slightly different themes to them because the, the new book is more about the living king and his actual life and death. But yes, basically they are the same subject. And I think what's changed is not so much the archaeological or textual evidence. It's not like we've found a huge amount more of evidence. We have a bit more mummy-based evidence, but that's still quite contentious. Not everyone accepts the results of that. What I think has changed is our perceptions of archaeology and Egyptology. And we're starting to really rethink this whole idea of people turning up in a foreign lands and excitedly digging for treasure and finding a foreign king lying in his graves and stripping him out of his graves and stripping of his bandages. 
even over the past 10 years, it's become apparent that this really is not an acceptable way to behave. And obviously, it's not something that would happen today, but it's something that needs some investigating and explaining. And I think this is one of the important aspects of the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb that we, we sometimes overlook, that it sparked a real change in approach to Egyptology. In that from this point onwards, it was no longer acceptable or expected that foreign investigators, foreign archaeologists would take home with them the finds that they made on a dig. People also started to question the ethics of digging up graves. Should we really be doing this? And if we do find a grave, should we be unwrapping a mummy or should we be leaving it as it is? All these things need to be discussed. You know, Tutankhamun, quite often it's said that he belongs to the world, but I'm fairly sure that the Egyptian people understand that he belongs to Egypt. These are all things that we should be discussing. We shouldn't really have Egyptology in a bubble, completely mm. separated from the real world. And I think over the past 10 years, that really is the difference in our approach to Tutankhamun. Mm. Very good. And touching on that, specifically the idea of archaeologists turning up, digging and taking things home with them, we need to address the uh, sort of recent uh, headlines about Howard Carter's transgressions, specifically with regards to items of varying size and value, which he may have taken from the tomb of Tutankhamun, either for himself or to give as gifts to people. Now, the the ones that you touch upon in the in the new book specifically are his his personal bequest when he died in 1939. Men. Uh, Approximately 20 items were identified in his uh, collection, which almost certainly came from Tutankhamun's tomb. And that subsequently raised questions about items that were in the collection of Lord Carnarvon at Highclere Castle, with many people wondering if he had items that Carter might have given him or that he had acquired during the excavation. What I want, what I want to ask, uh, first of all, is how does, how do these stories of Carter, specifically Carter, who we know did do it, taking these items, how do they fit into the, our developing understanding of archaeology and Egyptology as a adventurist colonialist ex exercise? What do they tell us about their attitudes? I'm not entirely sure we can 100% say that Carter did it. I think what we can say is that okay. Carter had the stuff. Um, I think we have to remember that when they were excavating, Lord Carnarvon expected that he would get all, if not, well, not part of, not all. He, he, he would hope to have got all, but would ex definitely expect to have got about half the contents of the tomb. And there were more than 5,000 grave goods in the tomb. So he, mm. he thought that this was going to come to him. He thought these were his. Mm. And I think legally at the time, he, he had a reason to think this under the Egyptian law. Now, you can argue, and I think people would argue, obviously, this was not good law, but mm. that was the law at the time. Artifacts were found in Carter's possession when he died. What's not clear, I think, is where they came from, whether Carter himself took them or whether Lord Carnarvon took them and Carter found them when he was helping to sort out Lord Carnarvon's collection after his death. Uh -huh. So they might well have come from Lord Carnarvon. I don't think there's anything at Highclere now that comes from Tutankhamun. But mm. if Carter found these, he what would he do with them? This is the trouble. You, you couldn't leave them there. It would be a problem if he took them and then tried to return them or, or put them in his will that there's someone should find them and return them later. Maybe that's what happened. That's why I'm just being a bit hesitant. I'm not denying mm. that things were taken. I'm just not entirely sure who took them. 
but whoever no, took them, they ended up in, in, in Carter's um, possession. It's so point. difficult, isn't it? Because you can see why, if you thought that you're entitled to this stuff and you'd found this to him, you might be tempted to just take a few small objects. I'm not excusing it in the slightest. Mm. Um, but these things happened in those days. Mm. Um, that, there's nothing more to say about it, really, is there? I mean, it shouldn't have happened. No, it shouldn't. But it did happen. Yeah. No, that's you raised some valid points there about uh, many with many of these objects. We we can't prove beyond reasonable doubt who who took them exactly and when or how they arrived in certain collections. All we can say is they came from the tomb and somebody took them without permission, but who that yes. was and when, that is a valid point. Uh, thank yeah. you for bringing that I mean, that, that doesn't up. excuse it. I'm, I'm not trying no. to make excuses for them, but it was a very different time. And I can see that if you thought that this was yours anyway, you <laughs> might well be tempted to take a souvenir of that first day when things are open. I mean, it's utterly wrong because apart from anything else, apart from the question of ownership it also completely destroys the archaeology because if mm. you remove things from the collection then the archaeology itself is messed up mm. and that slightly is why i tend to think maybe it was lord carnarvon but I, i'm only guessing i don't know because howard carter seems to be such a stickler for the archaeology mm. that i can't see him doing taking things before they were recorded and of course once they were recorded then you wouldn't be able to take them because they would be obviously missing mm. but who knows who knows sure so I should I should ask about the uh, the dispute that was uh, headlines recently between Alan Gardner and Howard Carter in 1934 over a small amulet that Carter had supposedly given to Gardner, explicitly assuring him that it did not come from the tomb, but it subsequently proved that it did. Bearing bearing in mind that we don't have the full story of what happened, we only have a couple of letters from Alan Gardner testifying his his side of the story and we have one letter from Carter referencing it would that is that another situation in your just general assessment not you know we're not prosecuting the case here is that another another situation where maybe we can't be entirely sure exactly what was happening well on the face of it, and I've only read it in newspapers, um, mm. so you know that there's possibly more to it than we know on the face of it it seems fairly clear-cut case again, of things being taken. Alan Gardner obviously worked in the tomb. It's not just a random gift to a random stranger. But again, it's it's wrong. It shouldn't have happened. Mm. It did happen. Um, I think we just have to accept that these things happen um, mm. and try and find if anything else is missing. Although obviously mm. it would be really, really difficult to tell if something is missing or not. Mm. Um, and again, I'm not trying to excuse it in any way. But at the time, possibly it seemed just a small insignificant part of a, such a huge collection mm. that possibly no one thought it mattered, mm. which is wrong. What but... I, well, what I was getting at perhaps more generally is it seems from Carter's letters, again, um, we're only working off fragments. It seems from Carter's letters that he was either denying that it came from the tomb or that he wasn't aware that it came from the tomb. Yeah. Does that introduce an element of doubt into the <laughs> accusation is what I'm curious about. Yeah, I mean, why why would he lie about it? I don't know. I mean, you could say he would lie about it because he knew it was wrong, but then if you deny it, then it takes all the value away from the piece anyway. Mm. Um, it's it's just really, really difficult. And because I've not studied it in detail, it's really difficult for, for me to comment on it. Mm. But it's a shame if these, and again, I don't want to 
minimize the importance in any way in an archaeological site you do not take things off the site also you do not steal things from egypt but that's a given but it's a shame if these very minor-ish things sort of detract away from his excavation of the tomb which on the whole was very Mm. very good if we compare him to the work being done by other people just slightly earlier he is Mm. is an excellent excavator so on the whole we have to be really glad that howard carter was excavating the tomb and not some of the other people who'd worked in the valley of the kings i'm not going to name names but you know people who were stripping (laughs) (laughs) but they were stripping tombs in two or three days they weren't guarding the tomb so the stuff Mm. that was in the tomb was being bought for you know it was being found and instantly being popping up in antiquities um markets you know two Mm. or three days later because it was being stolen so at least with our carter we have the vast majority of the artifacts and we know where they're found in the tomb whereas other tombs there we we don't have that luxury that's the problem with archaeology isn't it it's destructive as soon as you find Mm. something as soon as you find a site you destroy it and Mm. so much depends on the archaeologist doing the right thing the right recording preserving everything not taking anything away guarding it properly so that other people don't take it away before it's properly recorded and so on and i think on the whole he was better than many of his contemporaries Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Now, the, the items that did uh, make their way to other collections, you've, you touch on in the new book that it raises an interesting question about the, the narrative or reconstruction which Carter presented of the ancient tomb robberies. And uh, just to quote you, you said, you know, it raises the question that perhaps the evidence for the ancient robberies, the damage to the doors, the tunnel through the passageway, and the disorder within the tomb, and a collection of gold rings tied up in a linen cloth, it raises the question of that narrative is less clear cut than Carter would have us believe. We have to take his word for it because excavating that passageway, removing the fill, meant that we can't look at it anymore. But at the time, I think I'm right in saying that if a tomb had been robbed, it made a slight difference to the ownership of the property. So this might have been important to Lord Carnarvon as part of his case for claiming mm. claiming the ownership of the tomb. We don't know. Again, we don't know whether it had been, had been robbed. I mean, there are things missing that you would expect to be there. And it does seem clear that the boxes themselves were full of jumbles of material they didn't have they have labels and they didn't have what you would expect to find relating to the labels and this sort of all mixture of content and it looks like everything's just been stacked up what we don't know is if this was normal maybe all tombs were a mess Mm. or maybe it had indeed been robbed because maybe the robbers were the the people who filled the tomb that's that's the other possibility Mm. that it wasn't external robbers but maybe the undertakers or the priests or whoever packed the tomb went through the boxes at the time and it's really, really difficult for us to tell. Mm. I mean, we just, I guess we just have to take an open mind. Mm. Um, whether Carter believed this, he certainly wrote it and he mm. is a good excavator. 
whether he would lie about it, I just don't know. I just don't know. It's, it's so difficult, isn't it? Because you're trying yeah. to reconstruct things that none of the eyewitnesses are now around. You can certainly make a good case for the fact that it was robbed because it was all being jumbled up and so on. But you could mm. also make a case for saying, well, maybe it wasn't. Mm. I'm sorry, that's so really it, wishy-washy, isn't it? But that's no, Egyptology. It's, that's a, it's a question without an answer, but it's an interesting it, one. because It is. We yeah, we, we come across so many of these questions in Egyptology that all we can do is to pile up the evidence on either side of the case and sort of look at them and try and decide mm. where we are. And I love that about the, well, Egyptology and the ancient world. I love the idea that we have, we're still putting the jigsaw puzzle together. I know some people find it really frustrating and they like to have a clear narrative. But mm. to me, the fact that we can just look at the evidence and think, well, what might have happened? You know, it's like a detective story, isn't it? And um, yep. yeah. A lot of my students, I find, who study Egyptology also like detective stories. And it's mm. the same mentality, trying to piece it together and in your own mind make sense of what happened. Absolutely. Speaking of narratives that are demanding of, ex of investigation, one of the more prominent myths that has developed around the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb in the, during the 20th century is the myth of the water boy. And I specifically call it a myth both here and in my own episodes that I have published about the tomb. Because as you note in, the, in this book and as other scholars have noted, there really is no substantial or direct evidence that the water boy story is true. You note in the book that uh, several families in the Kurna region strongly disputed the claims that Hussein al-Rasul was the water boy and that he, he or his family was responsible for finding it. And you also note that the idea of the water boy, or of more general specifically of Howard Carter hiding the water boy during his actual press, press tours and presentations, the idea that he would cover up this rather charming little story seems to clash with his own recorded history of how he dealt with Egyptians and Egyptian workers during his time in Egypt. You note how you note the incident where he sided with Egyptian guards at Saqqara when dealing with some drunken French tourists. Now that could easily be English uh, prejudice against drunken French tourists, but he did side with the English uh, with the Egyptian guards to his own detriment. You note how he was in his own diary and his tours. He was always very explicit about crediting the Egyptian workers as the ones who found the tomb. He arrived on site in the morning and they had already found the step. He was not even present. And you note that he even made a point of acknowledging the workers, especially the uh, race or foremen, in the publication of the tomb of Tutankhamen. And yet, if you ask most many people who are familiar with the tomb of Tutankhamun, they'll tell you that a water boy found it. And it's the it's the it's the water boy in the photo who's wearing the big necklace, and isn't it marvelous? What does a story like this, if it is indeed a fictional story rather than truth, what does this kind of story tell us about attitudes towards the discovery in the popular media, and specifically attitudes towards and Egyptian archaeology? So interesting, isn't it? Even a fairly recent BBC reconstruction of the discovery um, showed it being discovered by the water boy, not, mm. not what really happened. Um, 
and in reality, you just can't see a water boy being allowed on the site where they were digging. There's there's really no evidence at all to support it. And the fact that the Egyptian workers themselves denied this, and they would be really the ones who would know. Um, I, for me, I think also that the point that you made that Howard Carter was almost a showman. He he, this was his job. He didn't have any other job. And when Lord Carnarvon died, he was fairly financially precarious. Um, he was reliant on Lady Carnarvon to keep funding him. And the tomb would have been his income for the rest of the life, not by stealing things, one would hope, but by lecturing and talking about it. I just can't see him missing any opportunity to put, as you say, a charming story out there because it would enhance. But it's, it has crept into the public imagination. And I think we like it because the idea of an innocent child finding something that the, the archaeologists are looking for it's, it, it again, it has a sort of naive, charming appeal, but again, it's kind of doing a disservice to the highly professional excavators that Howard Carter was employing, the Egyptian mm. workforce. They're not just going to let any old boy play on their site. This is a professional mm. organisation. It fits quite nicely with the idea that Howard Carter and Lord Carnarvon just stumbled across the tomb, which we also mm. find that they found it by accident. They didn't. They were looking for it. They knew where to look. They were stripping the valley bottom down to the bedrock because they knew it was in the valley bottom and they had highly experienced, highly professional Egyptian workmen working for them. So I think that although it's sort of a charming attempt to put a sort of local colour on on the story, actually what it is is um, downplaying the professional expertise of the workmen who were working on site under the supervision of Howard Carter. Mm. But I think it does tell us a lot about it, that we like this sort of story. and I'm sure this sort of story pops up in other contexts as well. I can't think of a single one, but, you know, mm. we do like these sort of odd stories and they do stick in the public imagination and, and people ask about it and, and they're really surprised when there's no evidence about it um, mm. because they like the story. The, the one that the comparison that comes to mind are those, the tales of discovering tombs because somebody's horse stumbles into a, yes. a crack or a hole. It almost it almost adds an element of fate or providence, which seems to sparkle people's imaginations. You know, that that divine luck almost. Yes, yes, it just it can't just be skill. That's not as interesting as actually stumbling across something. That that is just so so much better as a story. That these experts look for ages can't find it, then this innocent child finds it. Great story. <laughs> now, moving on, they they find Tutankhamun's tomb. They open it. They begin clearing. And they eventually reach the burial chamber and the corpse of the king. The treatment of Tutankhamun's corpse, you, you discuss uh, in some detail in the book about the, the various back and forths over how should they treat it. You know, there was, there was disagreement and dispute about what method they should use. Should they unwrap it or should they x-ray it? And you note the story of them actually inviting an x-ray uh, specialist to come to the tomb who unfortunately died en route. The end result is that Tutankhamun was dismembered, disarticulated, glued back together at some point, which had its own impact on medical uh, assessments of the king. There were a lot of misinterpretations based on uh, the faulty reassembling of the corpse. And now he is lying in a glass case underneath a sheet in the antechamber of the tomb, rather than lying in his sarcophagus or in the burial chamber or in one of the new galleries in the uh, various modern museums. After that lengthy introduction, my question is, has 
how do you how do you perceive the treatment of Tutankhamun post excavation in terms of what the original excavators wanted to achieve, which was to keep him within his tomb as a mark of respect, to treat him reverently, although they were ransacking his burial, versus the modern needs for conservation, uh, particularly the modern display case. Has the need for display overridden the original philosophical or moral concerns about a respectful interment? I, I think it possibly has. Um, I think I think one interesting thing is that Howard Carter, who is so careful about conserving the other artifacts in the tomb, seems far more casual about the preservation of the king's body. And I can't decide in my own mind whether this is because he's almost handed the problem over to the medical experts, that he steps aside at this point and they deal with it. Or more as I suspect that the body itself was almost seen as incidental. Mm. Um, there wasn't a real appreciation that the mummy as a whole was an important thing. Um, other, other scholars have worked on this as well and have pointed out that a mummy is, is not just a wrapped up body. It's a whole mm. thing and it's an entity in its own right. So by cutting through the bandages, you're stripping that, that potential for afterlife away from the king. You're, you're desecrating his body. You're not just unwrapping him. It, it mm. goes deeper than that because we should be regarding the mummy as a whole thing. And this is almost certainly what, Tutankhamun wouldn't have wanted to happen to his body. It seems that to Howard Carter, the, the, the king's body was less significant than anything else because it's the, it's the anatomist, D Douglas Derry, who actually feels the need to explain why they're doing this. Then when they start doing it, they find that the body is pretty much stuck into the mm -hmm. coffin and the, and the mask and everything. And this, I think, comes as a bit of a surprise because the other mummies that have been recovered from the Valley of the Kings are in much better condition, whereas Tutankhamun is covered in sort of sticky resin that's glued him in place. But of course, the other mummies that have been found from the Valley of the Kings aren't in the condition that they were when they were buried. These are mummies which were rescued from the Valley of the Kings in antiquity mm. and were stripped and rebandaged. So they've not been in prolonged contact with, with the resins and they've not been glued into anywhere. So when we think about the other mummies and we look at them, we're not directly comparing with Tutankhamun's mummy. We're looking at something that was actually done later to those mummies. Mm. So it's perhaps not surprising that Tutankhamun was in a very difficult and different condition. But it seems like once they started, they couldn't stop and they basically had to cut him out of the coffins mm. in sections to be able to get him out. And I guess, I suppose, once you've started that, you, you can't stop, can you? You can't leave half of him in the coffin, half not. But the way that they were happy to use heat to separate him from the coffins and, and knives and, and so on is, well, we wouldn't do it today. Mm. Of course, you could argue that we have better techniques. We don't just have x-rays. We can do proper scanning and so on. But all the same, it does seem needlessly destructive. And to do it so quickly mm. and to do it within the Valley of the Kings also seems really, really fast you wonder really what they were hoping to find in fact mm. what they did find was quite interesting because they found confirmation that the king was young mm. and when Howard Carter had started to look for the Tutankhamun he thought that he might be an elderly man maybe someone who'd married into the royal family mm. so it's only at this point when they could look at the body they could be absolutely certain that he was a what we would call a boy king but I think Tutankhamun would have hated that mm. but the idea that this is acceptable and the idea that then the mummy should be not put back together. It seems odd. 
there was in Howard Carter's diaries, I think it's the diaries or the journal that he keeps, he actually says that the mummy is to be rewrapped, but it clearly hasn't been rewrapped. So you're left thinking, well, was it rewrapped and unwrapped again later? Or did, was his idea of rewrapping just to sort of bundle it up in a bit of, of, of wrapping, but not to actually properly rewrap it and leave it like that? I don't know. Mm. The idea that the king should be left in the Valley of the Kings um, was one that was supported by a lot of people rather than putting him on display in a museum. Although it's a slightly empty gesture when you've taken all the grave goods away. Mm. Um, so you've got, it's almost like his burial is split in two, that his body is in mm. one place and his grave goods are in Cairo, mm. which I, I presumably Tutankhamun would have preferred that not to happen. Mm. But then to move him again out of the burial chamber for, for fairly valid reasons that he's not easy to see and um, put him into a glass case. Mm. It's, it does seem to be on the face of it, you know, you're, you're respecting the tourists more than you're respecting Tutankhamun's views. But now we have also, we don't even have tourists visiting the, the, the proper tomb. There's, a, there's um, mm. a fake, not fake's the wrong word, isn't it? A replica tomb. So, you know, um, he gets more privacy than perhaps he would have had in the past in his, his own burial place. It's a problem. What do you do with the mummies of the past that have been desecrated in this way? How do you, do you display them at all? Do you hide them? Mm. I mean, we had, a, we had a big issue with this. I work at Manchester University and we have a museum which has mummies there and I used to work at the museum and we went through an experimental phase when we covered up the mummies mm. so they were still on display but you couldn't see them they were sort of shrouded and a lot of people didn't like that at all because they thought that coming to the museum meant that they would see the mummies and not just shrouded mummies but they wanted to actually look at mm. the mummies so if you are if tourism is a big part of your income your national income to what extent do you go with what the tourists would prefer to what extent you go with what the dead king would prefer it's a really difficult question and it needs a lot of sensitivity i think to, to sort out really what one should be doing i mean personally having studied tutankhamun now for 10 years fairly intensely i personally now feel that actually i wouldn't want to excavate a tomb and there's a lot of talk about whether nefertiti might be buried inside Tutankhamun's tomb in, in sort of hidden behind his, his burial chamber. I don't mm. think she is actually, but I also mm. think that if she is, there's a big part of me thinks that she just, I hope she stays there surrounded mm. by her grave goods and that we don't disturb her because it just seems quite destructive, the whole process. And we haven't learned a great deal from mm. it, but I don't know if that's just me getting older and changing my views. I, I find mm. a lot of people change their views on this as they get older. And they harden going one way or another. Hmm. Something so, that my students again talk about a lot. You know, it's an interesting subject and it's difficult hmm. to reach a conclusion. Hmm. It's a shame that I can't ask you this question repeatedly over the course of your life and see how your answer changes. Yes, but yes, yes I understand yes. what you're saying. The, have you had a chance to see the display at the new National Museum of Egyptian Civilization? No, no. Okay. Compared to the original... Uh, Cairo things it is much uh, more respectful and um, I don't want to say grandiose but at least more considerate of them as individuals each each mummy has its own room or its own section of a hall and their their coffin is in a display case right next to them along in many, with in many cases some of their actual burial goods for example a uh, Tutmos the fourth is lying in a, a case and 
on the wall next to him is a whole collection of his shabtis and faience figurines and things. In some respects, they have reassembled parts of the burials for the new display, which I personally like a lot more than yes. what was before. It's a shame yes, that I'm the most the most famous of them, Tutankhamun, is languishing in his antechamber of all things. He's not even in his sarcophagus anymore. Yes, it's a shame he's split, split off from his grave goods. I think having having been with them for so long, it, it, it doesn't seem quite right, but maybe that's just me being over-emotional and I should be more scientific about it and say that this is the best way of doing it. Fair enough, fair enough. Now I want to touch on uh, the top, a topic that you discuss in the book and you focused on a great deal more in Tutankhamun's curse, and that is the curse or the narrative of the curse. One thing, well, I used I used Tutankhamun's curse uh, quite a bit when reason, when dealing my writing my own episodes about the tomb of Tutankhamun because you covered many of these little stories that were, that led up to the explosion of um, hype around the idea. Uh, very briefly, how does this curse story begin with regards to the tomb of Tutankhamun? The curse story is is interesting because it's almost entirely media generated. The curse story takes hold because of Lord Carnarvon's own actions, actually. Um, when he found the tomb, he expected to be able to claim at least half, if not all, the contents of the tomb. And obviously, they were extremely valuable. He could do with them what he liked. That wouldn't happen today, but um, that was in those days. But he also could see that it was going to take a long time to empty the tomb. So before he could get his reward, he would have to finance the excavation. You could argue that for a man as rich as he was, that wouldn't actually be very expensive. But either way, he decided to get some backing, some financial backing. So he stole the sold, sorry, sold the rights of the tomb to the Times of London newspaper. And this meant that only Times journalists could go into the tomb and all the other journalists who'd flocked to Luxor and who were sort of basically surrounding the tomb and watching what was going on could only find out what was happening by reading the Times newspaper. In fact, the workers in the tomb misfed them information to make mm. sure that they couldn't report on the tomb. This was particularly um, annoying, to say the least, to the Egyptian journalists who found that if they wanted to report on events in their own land about their own dead king, they had to read the Times of London. So there was a huge amount of dissatisfaction and the journalists who could perhaps have been supportive of the excavation turned against it. Then when Lord Carnarvon died fairly suddenly, it became a story that could be reported because there was no restriction on reporting Lord Carnarvon's death. But the journalists didn't ask the Egyptologists for um, comments. They asked their own experts and their experts were people like Arthur Conan Doyle, who famously obviously wrote Sherlock Holmes, but also believed in fairies and elementals. Mm. And people like the, the Gothic novelist Marie Corelli, who also believed in supernatural interventions. So they interviewed these experts. And you have to remember also that, of course, the public is primed to expect sinister things in tombs because there's already been mummy books published, mummy stories. So the idea of the malevolent mummy is not no stranger to, to mm. people reading about ancient Egypt. Even Louisa May Alcott, who wrote Little Women, wrote a mummy story. It was, it was quite um, a well-established genre. So they start to report on this with a sinister tinge and quoting people like Marie Corelli, basically saying, well, what do you expect? He investigated the tomb of a pharaoh. He's dead. There's a curse in the tomb. And this story just really, really took hold. 
unlike all conspiracy theories, of course, the more they tried to deny it, the more it took hold. And, and it was then envisaged that Howard Carter himself was concealing it because they wanted to keep it from the workmen or, or for, for other sinister reasons. And we've never really let this go. People still talk about the mummy's curse today. Whereas, mm. in fact, there is no direct curse at all in Tutankhamun's tomb. Mm. One of the, I guess, conspiracy theories you mentioned, or which was uh, discussed at the time, was the idea that Howard Carter had found clay tablets in the passageway leading to Tutankhamun's tomb, but he had hidden them away or even destroyed them so that the local workers could not read them and get spooked and refuse to work. Obviously, there's several major issues with that. First of all, Howard Carter was famously, you know, not very adept at reading hieroglyphs. He used people like Gardner to do it, so he wouldn't have known what a tablet was. And his workers almost certainly could not have sight-read a hieroglyphic tablet uh, like that. So what do stories like these about clay tablets frightening the natives, which is often a word that often shows up in these curse stories, what does this actually tell us about the attitudes of the people reporting on them towards the people of Egypt? Yes, I, th I think, first of all, um, the idea that the workmen will be spooked by this is, is just plain ridiculous. Again, this is, a, this is a professional band of men who are highly skilled at what they do. Mm. To suggest that they are sort of slightly primitive, that they will be frightened by things that maybe Howard Carter wouldn't be frightened by, just seems is ridiculous. It's a sort of racism, isn't it? So, to suggest that these people will be put off by this. And you're quite right. Um, Howard Carter himself wouldn't have been able to read it. And there is no evidence that anything like this did exist. But I think it's also part of a, a wider problem that we have with ancient Egypt or the study of mm. ancient Egypt is that so many people kind of see ancient Egypt as almost a bubble outside reality. It's, it's hard to describe. Mm. But they look at the beautiful tomb paintings and see happy Egyptian people working in the fields they see a life that, that looks glamorous and exciting and, and wealthy. And they seem to see the whole of ancient Egyptian past as being some sort of strange, non-real world. So they're happy to believe that they have magical powers. They're happy to believe that everyone's happy. You don't see anybody unhappy in ancient Egypt. And this view that we have as ancient Egypt as not being a real place and being sort of somehow removed from modern Egypt is, is, mm. I mean, they know we know that it is the same country, but still mm. there's a sort of perception that it's far removed from actual modern Egypt. And it's just strange. You know, mm. the ancient Egypt was a, a real place with real people and they had the same problems and the same expectations of life that we have today. They didn't have supernatural skills. They, they mm. weren't able to cast curses that, that last for thousands of years. But somehow we seem happy almost to accept this. And it's strange. I'm not quite sure why it's Egypt as opposed to other places. Well, I was going to ask because I've recently been reading a, a book about Richard III, and I don't remember any narratives about a curse of Richard III when they dug him up from a car park. No, no, no. And they also they don't show up with uh, excavations of Greece or Rome, but they do show up for Egypt and Mesopotamia. Yeah, yes. I mean, I think with Egypt, it's partially because we have this history of mummy stories um, mm. Mummies themselves can look quite sinister, and if you don't understand why the Egyptian people were creating mummies, then you might you might think it is quite sinister. It's also partially, actually, um, the tradition of displaying mummy cases standing up in museums. The Egyptians mm. didn't stand their mummy cases up; they lay down, and quite often inside the mummy was lying on its side rather than even on its back. But people have got used to the idea of the mummy case almost as being a door 
that will open mm. and the mummy can walk out of out of it. So it's, it's little things like that as well. We know that the Egyptians mummified their dead to give them their bodies, to allow them to retain human-like appearance so that the soul could live on and allow the dead person to live in the afterlife. It's very logical. It makes a lot of sense. But if you don't understand that and you're wondering why they have these, these mummies and it looks lifelike, you know, you're, you're sort of thinking, well, could it come, come alive? I guess that, that's why it happens. This lack of understanding. For a long time, we were unable to read the hieroglyphic script. So people believe that it might contain magic spells and, and knowledge that other people didn't have, whereas in fact it, it doesn't. People mm. looked at the pyramids and thought, well, how could they possibly build these things? Did they have knowledge that we don't have? Well, no, they just had a lot of workers and they worked really hard. So mm. it, it, it's this, this willingness to, to see ancient Egypt as something apart, I think. Mm. It's, it's a big problem. Mm. Um, I agree. If you're trying... Yeah, it, it, it's very odd, isn't it? Because if you mm. think about it, we don't see... Well, the perception is a lot of people imagine that they are re reincarnated from ancient Egyptians, but not many mm. of them see themselves as having just an ordinary life living in a village. They're always sort of a famous ancient Egyptian or a handmaid mm. to a famous ancient Egyptian. And obviously I don't want to attack anyone's beliefs. That's not my place to do that. But it, it would be nice if sometimes we saw the ordinary everyday side of ancient Egypt. It's not a side that, that documentaries particularly want to focus on. They will focus mm. on the glamorous and the strange and the religion and so on. But actually mm. there's just an ordinary everyday aspect to ancient Egypt as well. Mm, absolutely i agree nobody nobody claims to be the reincarnation of a medieval peasant they no. always claim to be connected with nobility is there in these in these fantasies is there a degree of aspiration or hope that you know if the ancient egyptian world or afterlife was real that you might get to experience it or if you know they did have supernatural magic or technology that somehow we could access it is there a degree of just aspirational hope from from it I think so, because, again, going back to the timing of the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb, which is straight after the Great War and straight after the influenza epidemic, an awful lot of people had lost loved ones. Mm. Um, an awful lot of young men weren't going to come home. And at the same time, sort of religious certainties were crumble, crumbling. So mm. churches were losing their grip that they had. People were starting to think there might be a different sort of afterlife to the traditional one that they'd been taught about. And also things that might have seemed like magic 50 years ago, like electric lights and airplanes and so on. The world was changing really fast and people mm. were happy to believe that there could be other answers to things. They were looking for answers. They were looking for connections to their dead ones. So things like seances became really popular at this time. And again, this connects very well to, to Egypt or the, the popular idea of Egypt in people's minds. And again, it sort of helps to boost the curse theory that everything seems possible. I believe it was um, in Christina Riggs' recent book, Treasured, about Tutankhamun, she mentions that one of, in the 20s, uh, Tutankhamun was a popular guest at seances. It was very <laughs> common to get in touch with the boy king, apparently. So, okay, so, yeah, so the curse is, broadly speaking, media-driven response to Carnarvon's own actions regarding uh, journalism but it also feeds off a already uh, developed literature around the ancient world, specifically Egypt and their magical, supernatural, dark and scary uh, gods and afterlife and things that they had. Things, But it's fundamentally well, I, built on ignorance about ancient Egypt as a, the reality. 
Yes, there was just a side branch of it, which took a more practical approach and said, okay, there's a curse, but it's not actually a spiritual curse as such. It's actually he put something in the tomb. So maybe he put radiation in the tomb or maybe Mm. he puts spores in which would kill people or maybe it was an accident and there are things. So there was a sort of more practical approach to it that the tomb might have killed him, but by actual, you know, maybe there was there were bat droppings that that mm. that infected him and so on. But there's no evidence for that either. Mm. And there's certainly no evidence for Tutankhamun himself booby trapping his tomb. <laughs> sure. Fair enough. We now turn to some lighter questions about Dr. Tildesley's recent work and life. First up, I had to ask her about her appearance on the show Kunk on Earth in which renowned investigative journalist Philomena Kunk speaks with scholars on various topics and makes beautiful statements about the past, including... Looking at the pyramids today, it's impossible not to be struck by the thought that they're basically big triangles with a sort of square arse. There's probably a word for that shape, but literally no one knows what it might be. It's one of the many timeless mysteries of the pyramids. And... During this Suez crisis, events in Suez reach crisis point. More research needed. Make sure script amended before voiceover record. And, it wasn't just- and now, back to the questions. Okay, well, those, that brings me to the end of my serious questions about uh, Tutankhamun and his tomb. If you have time, I'd like to ask just a couple of sort of lighter, lighter questions about life in general. Sure. Good. So uh, listeners, particularly in the UK, will be uh, most familiar with your recent appearance uh, on Kunk on Earth, speaking with in my opinion, the world's greatest interviewer, Philomena Kunk. I'm not going to ask you the obvious question of, did you know it was a comedic interview? My question is more specifically, what was your experience of speaking with Philomena Kunk, who brings up the most baffling, insane questions and comments? And how did you respond to that? Did you break character or did you manage to hold it together? I think it was easier for me because Philomena Kunk comes from Bolton like I do. So okay. actually talking to her, I'm very familiar with with her accent, um, yeah. and she yes she asks she asks she asks very challenging questions, but she's not stupid. She's ill informed, mm. and mm. I saw it as my role as um, a professor of Egyptology to to help to educate her. So not to try and patronise her, but to you know mm-hmm. sort of bring her up to speed a bit. And mm-hmm. I find it really enjoyable. Actually, I had a great time. Very good. I'm sure she learned a lot. Has a mummy ever ridden a bicycle? Not that I know of, no. But the ancient Egyptians didn't have bicycles. Right. They didn't even have roads, so they couldn't have a bicycle because they couldn't ride a bicycle. I don't know why I asked that. Just couldn't think of anything else to say. So, right now, what are you... What are you currently reading or listening to or watching that has nothing to do with ancient Egypt? What is something that you're invested in at the moment? Well, we're having um, a, a big run of watching sort of Scandinois type um, detective stories. I love detective stories. I've already Scandi- mentioned that. Scandinois. What is that? Yes. Detective stories set in Scandinavia. Oh, um, right. There's a okay. whole, yeah, things like the bridge and, and mm. the killing and so on. Um, I really Scandinois. like detective stories. I'm sure it connects with the archaeology aspect of it again. Yeah. Um, so that's definitely what I'm watching on the telly. I'm also watching Strictly Come Dancing. Do you have that? <laughs> we do. I don't watch it, I'm afraid, but I'm familiar with it. <laughs> I admire people who can dance. I'm so clumsy. I couldn't. I have to look down to see which foot is in front of the other one, so I would never be able to do that. 
Well, as for reading, um, I'm training to run a half marathon next mm-hmm. week. Wow. So I've been doing quite a bit of running. I'm I'm not mm-hmm. very sporty, <laughs> to mm-hmm. say the least. So I thought possibly the best way to prepare for this is to read about running. So I've been doing a very lot good. of reading, people who've, mm-hmm. who've done running and who are offering advice, and I'm taking it all in and thinking, actually, it's next week. Possibly I've left this a bit late. So that's <laughs> really what first... I've been up to. <laughs> this is no, your I've first done half it before. Marathon? No, I've done it before, but it's it's never ended well. <laughs> I've always okay. completed it, but I've never managed to to run to the end of it. And sure. I would just like, and obviously as the years go by, it gets harder and harder. Mm. Um, but every year I think, right, I'll do it this year. And then life gets in the way. And then you realize it's next week and you're still not as trained up as you should be. I my people who set a goal and, and go for it and do it. Mm. Um, mm. I wonder so, what yeah, that's like. It, mm. <laughs> yes, no, that's that's very admirable to to attempt that. So what, what inspired that? Is that a regular thing that you try to, that you do? No, but when COVID started, I thought I should try and get fit because mm. I wasn't fit. Um, mm. So I started running as being possibly the easiest thing to do because my timetable is quite fluid because I teach online and sometimes I teach at night and sometimes in the day and things. So um, obviously I, I wasn't really going to join a, a class or anything because of the timetabling issues and I'm not going to join a team of anything because I'm not very sportive. And I thought running, I can just do by myself and mm-hmm. I'm nobody's, you know, I'm not going to slow anybody down if I just, you know, just, just go on and do my own pace and enjoy it. And it'll give me a bit of break from thing. So I started, started doing it then with the aim of getting fit in case I caught mm. COVID um, to help me to be fitter. And I, I am, I've lost weight and feel fitter. So it's okay. working, but I'm very, very slow. I'm probably giving you, <laughs> your listeners completely the wrong impression. They probably imagine someone really sporty. I'm not really sporty. <laughs> I'm really, really slow and I'm 62. So, you know, it's, it's never going to get really much better than it is now, but I do enjoy it. Good. At least if you find yourself trapped in a Scandinoir, you will have a half chance of escaping. <laughs> That's true. So now I'd like to, I'll finish off by revisiting a question that I asked you last time. And it's something that I ask every inter- interviewee and I, just because I'm interested in their answer, whatever it is. So my question is, if you could resolve one issue or answer one question from ancient history, if you could answer one question with reasonable scientific certainty, what would you choose to know from the past and why? What I would choose to know from the past is not Tutankhamun connected, actually. I would go to the reign of Hatshepsut Mm -hmm. and I would really, really like to know how she got on that throne. What, Mm -hmm. What happened to allow her to step forward and take the throne and rule as a female pharaoh for 20 plus years. Mm-hmm. Um, because that is something that I've thought about an awful lot over the past mm-hmm. 30 or 40 years. And to have some certainty on that, I don't know how I'd ever know that. I don't know mm-hmm. what sort of evidence would have to pop up mm-hmm. for, for that to be knowable, but it would just be so interesting. It's just a little itch that, that I would really like to have the answer to. Mm. Very good, understandable. Considering you've written a whole book about her, that's a perfectly understandable answer. Yes, very good. Well, thank you, uh, Joyce, for coming on the show for the second time. You are the first guest who I have invited back on the show. So thank you for joining us again. And I hope you you have a lovely uh, rest of your week in Bolton and I hope the press junket is not too grueling moving forward. Thank you. (laughs) Take care. Thank you. Bye.
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.